Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would open to Esther 8, we're going to finish Esther today, Esther 8 through 10. Then, Lord willing, we'll spend a couple of weeks um, doing Ezra, E-Z-R-A, uh, two weeks. And then we'll start the Minor Prophets, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. So we're going to finish this um, Esther 8 through 10 today, and I'll just dive right in since we're going to be moving fairly quickly. Keep your Bibles open and keep your pens hot because we've got a lot to talk about. Esther 10, verse 1, On that day King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. Remember the details. Haman, uh, Esther was made queen in chapter 1, uh, Vashti was deposed in chapter 1, rather Esther was made queen in chapter 2. There was no apparent reason for the deposition of one queen and the installation of another queen, but what did we say? God is always working, and he's working not late, he always works well in advance of when the item is needed. So in, Esther was installed as queen way before there was even a need for that. After Queen Esther's um, installation, there's about a five-year window, and we found out last week that uh, King Ahasuerus decided he needed to appoint a prime minister named Haman, who was the Hitler of the Old Testament. And Haman had gone to the king and said, um, I'm going to pay you around $250 million if you'll take care of this people group and eliminate them from the face of the earth. Their laws are different. They don't behave like we behave. The king didn't pay any attention to the legislation signed it into law that, in fact, the Jews were going to be destroyed, about two to three million people. It was the first recorded case of genocide in the scripture or attempted genocide. Last week we went through the fact that Mordecai had told Esther, you need to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people to the king and ask him to revoke this law. We learned that the king couldn't sleep. Um, Samanex didn't work for him. By the way, it doesn't work anyway. So um, uh, anyway, she intercedes. The king has now spared uh, her life. Haman has been impaled uh, on the gallows, which was a, a large stake they drove through your chest. So he's dead. But we still have some problems that have yet to be solved. So we're going to talk about this. Haman has just died. King Ahasuerus makes an imperial decree and he says, I'm going to give the entire estate of Haman, he was a very large and in charge and wealthy guy, to Esther. This is the great reversal. Remember, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, whose prime minister today can be dead tomorrow. So Esther receives all the wealth of Haman and Mordecai, her stepfather, receives Haman's position. He's now elevated to the position of prime minister. Now that's kind of like winning the lottery. Persian law always put the estate of a traitor into the custody of the king. So if you were a traitor against the throne and they executed you, your estate would not go to your heirs. As a traitor, your estate was confiscated by the state and it went to the king and the king had the right to give it to whom he wanted to, so he gave it to Queen Esther. Compensation for her pain and suffering and because he loved her, verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now remember we said the signet ring was a, king, a very large ring that had an imprint with the king's. It was like a signature stamp. And you would press it in wax, and the wax would harden. And if anybody messed with that wax signature, that was tantamount to treason. That was, was a capital crime. So if you had the king's signet ring, you had a blank check on the treasury. 
that's a fair chunk of wealth and power, hugely. So Esther told the king what her relationship with Mordecai was. The king promoted Mordecai, basically a friend of Esther's is a friend of mine. Remember now, Mordecai had not just saved Esther's life. Five years before this, he had saved whose life? The king's life. So the king owed him kind of big time at that point in time. By the way, Mordecai is not just a friend. Mordecai is now the king's father-in-law. So the father-in-law is the prime minister. And that could get interesting. <clears throat> yeah, power sharing, etc. He's number two in the empire. Which, by the way, there's a fair amount of historical data on that. Joseph was number two behind who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Daniel was number two behind Nebuchadnezzar, right? <coughs> Nehemiah, who had a very trusted position at Artaxerxes' court. He was the cupbearer, which means he tasted all the food and wine. So if somebody was trying to poison the king, the cupbearer died first. And then the king wouldn't eat the stuff. So that was a fairly uh, remarkable position at that point in time. What amazes me about this passage, just in the first two or three verses, is how quickly the king would replace his prime minister. He literally took the ring off Haman's dead finger and put it on Mordecai's finger like that. So he's really giving Mordecai the same blank check he gave Haman. Now we know a lot about Mordecai's character. We know he's a good guy. What we don't know about is his competence. doesn't say. It says he was in the king's service at the gate of the king, but we don't know anything about his competence. This king <clears throat> is not known for careful deliberation. Would you say? <laughs> this king is known for impulsive action, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that one prime minister is dead. He's going to replace him literally almost at the same time very, very quickly. There's a uh, scripture that New Testament gives us an interesting perspective on this. 1 Timothy 5.22, for those of you that are writing down, 1 Timothy 5.22, it's an admonition for people who are appointing positions of leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands, that means do not ordain anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. The problem in the church that Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus is that they would take people that were relatively novices, kind of newbies, and they would appoint them to positions of leadership in the church. Paul said, give them some time to season, test them with time and lower level responsibilities because the principle is if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're flaky with the dimes, what are you going to do with the dollars? People that can't handle a paycheck win the lottery. What happens to the money? Generally, they don't acquire wisdom with cash. The money leaves the fool. That's generally the principle. So here's the principle. Positions of leadership require people who are both capable and seasoned. Seasoned. Because leadership is so influential, selection is so critical. Have you ever noticed that some things can't be rushed? Some things just can't be rushed. You cannot achieve emotional maturity in a single weekend by taking an online cram course. Have you figured that out? Right? It takes time. How long does it take to grow a full-grown oak tree? It can take decades to grow an oak tree. How about, how many of you have ever had a real world-class stew out of a can? 
<laughs> most really good stews you have to take time with, correct? Okay. Most of you understand that a great marriage requires time, patience. You know the number one thing a great marriage takes? The number one thing. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Your relationship will never last with anyone on this planet if you are not willing to... Okay, Dinty Moore, beef stew, yeah. That is not a world-class stew, but it's good. It's good. First Timothy warns us that if you hastily appoint someone to leadership and they screw up, what does it say? You share in their responsibility. What is intriguing is this king doesn't seem to have learned that lesson from Haman. He doesn't seem to have gone to Esther. You never hear him say, Esther, I really screwed up with this appointment. I mean, this guy was going to butcher three million people. Bad decision I made. Never see him have that conversation with his queen and say, you know, I hired the guy that was trying to kill you. I probably would be a good idea to have a little conversation with her about that. Just a thought. <clears throat> Verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. Now this is the second intercession that Esther makes before the queen, before the king. She's pleading for clemency for the Jewish people. She's already been spared, right? Her life has been spared. This is a good example of intercession, by the way. She goes to the king, and she's going to the king on behalf of who? Someone other than herself. So when you go talk to the Lord, it's really a good habit to get into to pray on behalf of someone other than yourself. It's not that you shouldn't ask God for what you need, but many times our prayers begin with I and end with I. God, you're my Santa Claus. Now, if you would make my life good, an extra lollipop or two would be good, and blah, 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 to solve my problems. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God for what you need. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But I'm also encouraging us to intercede on behalf of others at that point. So she says in verse 5, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadoth of the Agagite, who wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. He, they have a big problem. Haman is what? Dead? Yes? He's dead or Elvis. But the problem is the evil he created is still alive, right? What evil did he create? He got the king to pass an edict to wipe out the Jews. Is that edict still in force? Yes. yes, it hasn't been revoked. The laws of the Medes and Persians can't be revoked. So the wicked edict was still in effect. Here's the principle. This one really bothers me. It's really true, but it really bothers me. Everyone leaves a legacy on earth and carries a legacy into eternity. We write our life story one choice at a time. I once read a novel about a black mamba, which is one of the two most venomous snakes in the world that got loose in New York City's Central Park. And the whole drama of this black mamba in New York Central Park made for some interesting reading. Eventually it was caught and killed, 
But in the last three or four lines of the novel, it was revealed that before it was killed, she had laid a clutch of eggs in Central Park. <laughs> so you have a venomous snake that's dead, but you have between 12 and 18 little ones that are going to hatch. Sometimes our evil lives beyond us. Matthew Henry wrote, many a man's mischief survives him. And the wickedness he devised operates when he is gone. That's a classic illustration of Haman. See, our choices, both good and bad, live beyond us. I can't tell you how many adult children I've talked to that are carrying scar tissue 50 years later as a result of choices their parents made or didn't make, right? Consequences, both good and bad, consequences. Here's the scripture reference for carrying your legacy into eternity. You might want to mark this one down. Revelation 14, 13. Revelation 14, 13 says that your deeds will follow you into eternity. Think about it when you make choices. It doesn't just impact your children and your grandchildren. It impacts you for all eternity. It should motivate us to want to leave a legacy of godliness. Your legacy will not be written on your tombstone. Your real legacy is written in the lives of the people that you influenced while you were here. And that legacy will be passed on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Verse 6, she intercedes with the king to revoke this decree because she says in verse 6, For how can I endure to see the destruction of my people and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So the king has spared her life, but he still hasn't spared the life of the Jewish people. He cannot revoke prior laws. That was one of the iron laws of the laws of the Median Persians. Once an imperial edict came down, it was non-changeable. So you couldn't change it. You couldn't say, we're going to X that law out. Bring the white out out. We're going to eliminate that law. He could, he could issue another edict, but he couldn't get rid of the one he had already done. You know, there are some things in life that if we don't have the blood of Jesus to cover, we're really in deep doo-doo. Because some things in life you cannot back up from. How many of you have ever said something with your mouth and then wished you could reel it back like a fish? You know, oh, I can't believe that came out of my mouth. Have you ever done that? I have done that. Only the blood of Jesus can cover that because there are some things that cannot be taken back. So the basis of Esther's appeal is personal. She says, I can't stand my people being destroyed and can, uh, my pain will be unendurable, therefore please take action. Now the king responds to that in verse 7 and 8 and in verse 8 he issues another command. And he says, now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring, which may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called in at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan. On the 23rd day it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. Now the king's response to Esther is to give her carte blanche, right? You know what that is? Blank check. Who else did he give blank check to two and a half months ago? Haman. Haman. The same blank check. Mordecai is given the right to draft the letter and to seal it with the king's ring, make it irrevocable. You get the feeling this king likes to delegate responsibility? 
maybe delegate authority, maybe delegate accountability. I, I find it very instructive to evaluate Ahasuerus' behavior here compared to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1 when he was going to depose Queen Vashti? What did he do? says he consulted with multiple advisors. Now, at the time he wanted to depose Vashti, he'd only been in power for three or four years. Now he's been in power for 10 to 12 years, and it's pretty clear he's pretty comfortable with his power base. You know, I don't need to talk to anybody. I can delegate as I see pleased at that point in time. He used to have a wide council of advisors. With Mordecai and Haman, he relies on one person and only one person, with the exception of Esther, for his advice. That's interesting. Proverbs 15.22 gives us some counter-advice. Proverbs 15.22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. Do you know why it says without consultation, plans are frustrated? Because we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. Right? It says, if you try and do it on your own, you're likely to run into brick walls and blind corners because we're not that smart by ourselves. That's why it says, seek counsel. The last half of that verse says, with many counselors, they succeed. I'm going to give you a truism. If you seek wise counselors, you will likely get wise advice, correct? <coughs> Say yes. Yes. If you talk to fools, what are you going to get in the way of advice? Probably foolish advice. You know, don't bother asking directions from someone who's already lost. You just get to be lost together, right? Probably won't help. You want to make sure the advice you ask for is godly and biblical. You know how you tell whether the advice you're getting is godly and biblical? You actually have to know what this says. Yeah? How do you know if they're giving you wise advice or stupid advice if you don't know what God says? So open the book yourselves. One of the things I love about this class is you guys know the word. And if I start stepping across lines, there's 80 of you that come around and slap me silly. That's good. Keeps us on track. Keeps us on track. Make sure we're getting the whole counsel of God. On the other hand, wicked advice is worse than no advice. And he had gotten some really stupid, evil advice from Haman. And because he didn't have any other counselor to say, whoa, 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 Ahasuerus, that's really bad advice, murdering three million people. That's wicked. What are you thinking about doing that for? Nobody was there. He was just relying on one person. He had, you know, didn't learn much from that. So he's, he's got a real hands-off policy in terms of stewardship of the empire. He seems to be delegating more and more. Here's the principle. You, you, can, you can use this in your life in almost everything. Here's the principle. Inspect what you expect. Now, that really works with teenagers. If you, if you expect them to clean their room, should you inspect it? <laughs> yes, you should inspect it, right? If you have an employee who you've delegated responsibility to get a task done, should you inspect it to see that it got done? Of course. Here's the last two words. God does. God expects you and I to live a certain way, correct? Does he inspect our lives? He does all the time. It says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's watching. He's watching. He's watching in love, but he is watching because he doesn't want us to run off the rails at that point in time. Inspect what you expect.
By the way, there's a very fine line between delegation and abdication. Very fine line. In delegation, you are assuming ultimately responsibility for the outcome of the decision. You are simply enlisting others to help you achieve that outcome. If you're in management or if you're a parent, grandparent, whatever it happens to be. In abdication, you are abandoning all responsibility. And there are leaders, quote, who do that. Delegation's appropriate. Abdication's awful. This king is on the line of abdication. On the line. It says, he, he gave Mordecai the right, sight unseen, to write the decree in the third month. That's the month Sivan on the 23rd day. Haman's decree, by the way, was written on the 13th day of the first month. So the 23rd day of the third month would be two years, two months, ten days. Two months, ten days after Haman's decree went out, this counter decree went out. Two months, ten days. This left about eight months, eight months, 20 days before Haman's decree went into effect and the Jews were going to be wiped out. So the Jews have almost nine months to prepare for this. Almost nine months. Verse 11. In them the king granted the Jews, this is the decree that was written, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any army, any people or province that might attack them. Chris, is that chair open? Mm -hmm. yep. Doug, yep. I got a chair up here for you. Uh, any promise that might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil, a copy of the edict was issued as law in each and every province. So this is the identical decree that Haman issued, only in reverse. Both decrees allowed Jews and Persians to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, to plunder the spoil. It really gave the Jews the right to attack anyone that they perceived to be a threat to their lives, including even women and children. Interesting decree, identical with Haman's. By the way, for those of you that are having trouble with this, there is a God-given right to self-defense. You have a responsibility to protect your life and the lives of those God has entrusted you with, namely your family. That is a God-given, not just right, it's a God-given responsibility. Okay? This is an illustration of that principle. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And many of the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So Mordecai is now formally elevated to the prime minister post. By the way, blue and white. Does anybody know what's significant about blue and white? They were the royal colors of the empire, of the Persian empire. So he's wearing that. It says, the Gentile Persians are in dread of the Jews. They are scared stiff by the power of Mordecai. Think about it. What do they know about a prime minister? Power. power. Huge power. Just two months ago said, we're going to wipe three million people out. And the king said, okay. Well, now there's another prime minister. We don't know anything about this prime minister. We know he's got the same power Haman had. You might want to be a little scared. Right? You might want to be a little cautious here at that point in time. It says that they became Jews. The word here is proselyte, which in some cases means a foreigner who comes to dwell among the Jews and embrace their religion. By the way, if you became a full proselyte, circumcision, Shabbat, that means keep the Sabbath, obedience to the Mosaic law, very specific, very detailed. It just wasn't simply, I've decided to follow Moses, I want to be a Jew. 
and I'll kind of do what I want to do. If you become a Jew, you've got a set of standards that are detailed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that you are to follow. Some of these conversions were genuine, no question. Some of them were politically correct, okay? To get along, you got to go along. Who's got the power today? I'll become a Jew if I need to become a Jew because Mordecai's prime minister. I'm sure some of these people had lined up behind Haman because it was politically convenient at the time to become a Jew hater because Haman was. It's the nature of political nature of power in an empire. Chapter 9. We've got the decree and we have the counter decree. Now in the 12th month, we've now passed nine months from the time the counter decree was issued. We're now in the month Adar, which is the, the 12th month of the calendar year on the 13th day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. It literally says it was turned over. Like you fry an egg, you know, bottom side up. The world had literally turned upside down. The tables were turned. The shoe was on the other foot. Genesis 50, 20 says what? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's talking about Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery and two years later became the prime minister of Egypt. How interesting. The world turns upside down. Romans 8, 28. It says, God causes how many things to work together? That's pretty easy to say, isn't it? Some of us are in circumstances right now where we look at that and we go, I don't see it. God, I do not see how you are going to turn my situation for good because my situation is hopeless. Right? From my perspective, it's hopeless. When Haman wrote a decree and the king signed it. It was the law of the land. The Persian Empire was the most powerful empire in the world at that point in time. That was a death warrant for three million Jews, and there's no way that there was a political solution to that. There wasn't one, unless God works. We go to Washington, D.C. and Sacramento, and I'm not decrying the political process. I think it has place and time. But the solutions that the human heart needs are not political solutions. You cannot legislate a change of heart in people. That's the only thing God can change the human heart at that point in time. So some of us in this room right now are going to read Romans 8, 28, and that's going to be a statement of faith. God causes all things to work together for good because right now you're not seeing it. Right? You're going to have to trust him when you can't see it because God wrote the book of Esther to show you that if he can save three million people from certain death, he's got your back. He's got your problems under control. You trust him. You walk with him. You obey day by day. Verse 2. The Jews assembled in their city throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. You know, the implication of this verse, too, is rather astonishing. Haman issues an edict to wipe out the Jews, all of them. 
Esther and Mordecai issue a counter decree under the name of the king that the Jews now have the right to defend their lives. And the king is on the side of the Jews. Eight months later, in verse 2, there are still people who want to kill the Jews. There are still people. There's still anti-Semitism, even though the powers that be in the capital of Susa are pro-Jew. That is amazing to me. It shouldn't be amazing to us. Satan is behind wiping out the Jewish race so he can get to the Messiah. That is not new to us. Anti-Semitism is on the rise today. You don't have to go very far to read the paper and go, this makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand, as we talked last week, the supernatural forces behind the scenes that want to take out the Jews. And Satan hates the Jewish nation. Absolutely. Because they're the apple of God's eye. God's plan is going to succeed for Israel. It's going to succeed for Israel. Now, here's what you need to underline. God's plan for Israel will succeed even when Israel herself is disobedient to her Messiah, as she is today. You know something? God's plan for you will succeed. Even when you're disobedient. Now, when you disobey, what do you invite him to do? Discipline your life. Because here's the principle. God always disciplines the disobedient. Write it down. God always disciplines the disobedience. You cannot disobey God without discipline. You cannot. I didn't say when the discipline would occur. That's up to God. But the discipline will occur. Israel is being disciplined. God's people are being disciplined because we're his children. This is now turned upside down. The victims have become the victors. And like in Joshua 2, God himself sent a supernatural fear of the Jews upon the enemies of the Jews. Verse 3, even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews. The formal levers of power, the political muckety-mucks are now on the side of the Jews because they're sensitive and fearful and uh, respectful of Mordecai. Verse 4, Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Verse 5, Thus the Jews struck their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who had hated them. This was the complete reversal of what Haman had planned. The complete reversal. You know, the implication of that is interesting. Will plans against God ever succeed ultimately? No. no, they won't, because he is sovereign. What this means is that the Jews had no difficulty defending themselves against their enemies. They were completely successful in self-defense. Verse 12, the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. That's the military fortress, the capital, the summer capital of the empire. <laughs> What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now then, what is your petition? It shall be done. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. You know, it's interesting, the last two statements, it's a pretty perceptive king. He got the feeling she had more on her plate to ask for, right? How many of you are in the service this morning? Those of you that are not sufficiently convicted, go to the next one. You will be. Fabulous. How to honor your wife. 
He's not doing a very good job of that, but he knows enough to know that she's got some more requests on her plate. It sounds like he's almost cheering the Jews on. He's happy for the, you know, by the way, casualties never seem to bother this guy. Did, you know, a few people die here and there, whether it's Jews or Persians. He could sign a decree, three million Jews get wiped out and go have a drink with Haman, you know, down at the bar, which they did. So here there's 500 of the Persian pagans being killed. Eh, you know, not a big deal. Haman's 10 sons were also killed. Verse 13 has caused some real grief for commentators. Then said Esther, verse 13, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be so. So this additional day of granting the Jews the ability to defend themselves applies only in the city of Susa, not the rest of the empire. You know why that is? Uh, they didn't have the internet back in the day. They couldn't uh, click and say, by the way, all the Jews throughout the empire, you have one more day to defend yourselves. You know, you had to do this by horse relay. That was the fastest form of communication. You couldn't get to the ends of the empire by tomorrow. Couldn't happen. Communication was a whole lot slower. So just for the city where they could get the word out. And there's been quite a lot of ink spilled about why Esther requested an additional day. You know, did she uncover further plans for attacks on the Jews? So she asked for an additional day. Was she just getting vengeance? Was she just vindictive, wanting to exact revenge? It's not known, but she also asked that Haman's sons be hanged. Now, by the way, the sons are already dead. They, they, they were already killed in today's fighting. So this is just a spectacle or just a statement, I guess. This is a spectacle and a statement. It wasn't to execute them. They were already dead. It was for public display uh, and deterrent against future criminal behavior. It's, it's interesting. When you read history, which I highly recommend to you, um, kings would routinely display the bodies of enemies of the state on, in public spaces. And they'd usually put them at crossroads where a whole lot of people could come by and see. They'd hang a body up on a bridge where you cross the bridge and you look at, you know, this person and you knew that they had done something pretty bad to get strung up and hung up like that. It applies to us as Christians that Jesus was hung in a very public place, very visible. The, the Jews who crucified him and the Romans wanted him to be visible. He prophesied that. He said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. His death gave life. This death was just death at that point in time. The reason public display and deterrent is so strong, it's the same reason why Auschwitz, Belsen, Buchenwald, and the rest of the horrible death camps in World War II, why we preserve them as memorials. It is absolutely essential that we preserve the memorials of our wicked deeds as well as our triumphs. We must preserve them. We have to look at the results of evil regularly so that we will not forget, number one, that it really did happen because there are Holocaust deniers, if you can believe that. We got film, we've got live. I mean, there are people all over the place that say that it didn't happen, you made it up. I mean, you've, it's, it's incredible, literally incredible. 
But if you don't face the consequences of evil and remember it, you will what? Repeat it. George Santana says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Here's one of my favorite Russian proverbs. Remember the past and you lose an eye. Forget the past and you lose both eyes. Practically speaking, anytime you've screwed up, I've talked to people who've made some pretty major screw-ups. And what I don't ever want to hear is, I don't want to talk about it. It's too painful. I don't want to think about it. It's too painful. You at least need to talk to God about it. Right? By the way, that's where you start. Whoever else you talk about, you let the Holy Spirit lead you. I'm not saying you share everything in your life. But if you and I are unwilling to let the Holy Spirit shine the light of truth in our lives and say, you need to call it what it is. It is sin. It is evil. It is sin against God and it's sin against the people I love, whether it's family members or, or, or church members or neighbors or children, whatever it happens to be. If we're not willing to look at the past and remember the evil, you know what happens? We start to whitewash it. Well, it wasn't that bad. They got over it. You know, it's okay. There are whole cultures that do this. When you talk to the Asian culture, they rely on memory fatigue. Well, that happened 20 years ago. Does 20 years heal? Sometimes it just makes it worse. Let God do surgery or he needs to do surgery. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Underline that. The last phrase. That last phrase shows up three times. And when God repeats something, you know what he's saying? Escuche. Pay attention. I repeated it, right? What's important here is what motivated Jews was not the plunder. It's not the stuff. It's self-defense. The people hated the Jews so much they tried to murder them. We've already talked about that's ultimately motivated by Satan. But three times this passage says the Jews were not motivated by the plunder. And when they didn't lay hands on the stuff, they demonstrated to everybody this was only self-defense. We didn't kill these people to get their stuff. We only defended our own lives. Verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. By the way, the first feast of Purim, the 14th day of the 12th month, was March 7th, 473 B.C., and as Brother Stewart just reminded me, the next dates of Purim today will be celebrated March 4th, sunset March 4th, which is a Wednesday, Tonight, fall, March 5th was this Thursday. So that's the next time Purim's going to be uh, celebrated. So what is Purim? We're going to get into that. If you read verse 22, it says, On those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemy. Verse 26, Therefore they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Verse 27, The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to the regulation, according to your appointed time. Purim is the most festive, uh, one of the most festive of all the Jewish celebrations. It begins with a fast on day one, 
And then they go to synagogue to hear the re reading of the Megillah, which is the scroll of Esther, the scroll of Esther. And when the, uh, cat, when the cantor reads the name Mordecai, everybody shouts, blessed be Mordecai. And when the name of Haman is read, everybody stamps their feet, uh, makes noise with their groggers. A grogger's a noisemaker. All the kiddos have groggers. Right, Stuart? And they shout, cursed be Haman. So it is an interactive uh, uh, reading of the law. By the way, this can take quite some time because Jewish law requires that every word of the text to be heard. So whoever's ever reading the text has got to stop until all the noise has died down, then they can read the next phrase. By the way, Haman shows up in this passage a lot, so you can hear a lot of cursed be Hamans when this uh, <laughs> celebration is going on. Uh, on Purim, they're commanded to give gifts to the poor and the needy. Uh, many folks, many Jewish folks dress up in costumes and they have a party or a parade. The rabbis have written that on Purim, a man should mellow himself with wine until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. <laughs> I can't tell the difference. <laughs> That's the one day it's kosher to get drunk, right? I guess so. Kind of like a Jewish Mardi Gras. Uh, masks and costumes are frequently worn. Um, some come to the synagogue, many come to the synagogue dressed as Mordecai or Esther, male and female. But it's interesting, uh, today you will see many uh, uh, Jewish folks that celebrate uh, Purim come in uh, uh, costumes and masks of very anti-Semitic people. They might be wearing a mask of Yasser Arafat, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, etc., etc., to highlight the wickedness of that. So it, 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 it's kind of like Halloween, no occultic overtones, etc. There are several things to notice about the Feast of Purim. And I don't say this negatively, but I do say it, pay attention to the differentiation. This feast was established by man, not God. This came from Mordecai and Esther. Other feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, were biblical feasts ordained by God for his purposes. Purim is largely a human holiday. I'm not critiquing it. I'm just saying the origin of it, you need to know. The purpose of the feast is to celebrate the Jewish victory over their enemies. The book of Esther has no mention of God's victory, God's deliverance, or giving God the glory. So when you read this Feast of Purim, you might be tempted to think, it sounds like the Super Bowl. You know, we won, you lost, etc., etc. The Feast of Purim is celebrated perhaps a bit differently in that it celebrates a physical victory over a physical enemy. When God ordains a feast like the Passover, it's up front and center focus is the worship and praise for what God has done. So we need to interpret the book of Esther in light of the entire Bible. Esther is an interesting uh, part of Scripture in that it's the only book that I know in Scripture that never mentions the name of God. Not once. I didn't say God wasn't present. I said his name is not mentioned. God is everywhere in this book, if you have eyes to see. But when you read the book, it highlights the kingdom of man, the glories of empire, the exploits of people. Human kingdoms are man-centered, ego-driven, and temporal. The Persian Empire lasted about 200 years. 140 years after Esther, the Greeks overran it and they ceased to exist. Human kingdoms are always under the control of who? Satan. Man, which is under the control of Satan. What is not mentioned in the book of Esther is the kingdom of God on earth. 
God's kingdom on earth at that point was centered in where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, back in the land. It was in Jerusalem, the temple, the Holy of Holies, that God had said, I am going to dwell with mankind and my residence will be in the temple in the Holy of Holies. So the book of Esther, when you read it, it reveals on the surface what man was doing through the people, right, in Persia. Well, if you want to know what God was doing at the same time, you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that tells you what God was doing through his people in Jerusalem. Just to give you an idea. At this point in time, Jerusalem was very poor, very dangerous, almost primitive. There was a few thousand people there. Persia was sophisticated, wealthy, cosmopolitan, the capital of the world. The Jews in the book of Esther are impressed and preoccupied with man's kingdom, not God's kingdom. The Jews in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra are preoccupied with what God is doing in Jerusalem. Those are two contrasts. I'm going to talk more about that next week. We do know that God is sovereign. And what did we say last week? God is always working. Now, in the book of Esther, you only see God working backstage. Correct? His name is never mentioned. He is never verbally given praise. He's never even talked about. The most phenomenal thing to me is how many times you see God at work in Esther and what is most revealing is that no one recognizes God at work in this book and says it. In Exodus, it says at the end of the ten plagues that Pharaoh finally recognized that God was the God of heaven and earth and these plagues came from him. Genesis tells us that the Canaanites recognized that the source of Isaac, Isaac's prosperity was God. The Canaanites recognized that God was with Isaac and they wanted to make a treaty with him. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar finally understood that Daniel's God was the God of heaven and earth. And he worshipped him. I think you'll very much see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But in Esther, no one sees God working. And you know something? It's very easy to look and go, man, they were spiritually dull. That is us. Them is us in this culture. We fail to give God glory. You know why? Because we think we've done it all ourselves. I wrote this down. I didn't put it on the board, but I'm really tempted. I think it's probably true. We fail to give God glory every time we fail to say, thank you, Lord. Because you know who you're, who you're giving credit to when you don't say thank you? Me. I don't need God. I can do it myself. Here's the principle. If you want to see God working, ask Him to open your eyes. 2 Kings 6, by the way, is a very, very good passage. 2 Kings 6, 14-18. The prophet Elisha is working miracles. The king of Aram, the Syrian king next door, says, We've got to capture this guy. He's doing us too much grief. They send a big army around the city where Elisha is. There's this huge army around the city, and they're going to capture him. The king's servant, I mean, Elisha's servant goes out. He sees this large army. He comes back, and he says, Elisha, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's this huge army around the city. We're going to be captured. And Elisha tells him in verse 16, 2 Kings 6, 16, Do not fear, 
for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And if you're Elisha's servant, you're going, and what did you have for breakfast? You're hallucinating. I see thousands of soldiers out there. Where's all these troops that we have on our side, right? Impossible. The situation's impossible. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said what? O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he might see. And it says, The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In this room, how many angels are working today? On this campus, how much spiritual activity is going on? How much warfare is occurring on these grounds right now that you and I don't have eyes to see, but you know what's going on? Because you see the effects of it. People's lives are being changed. That doesn't happen magically. It happens because God is working. And wherever God is working, Satan is working. We have warfare. If you can't see God at work in Esther, if you can't see God at work in your life, ask him to open your eyes. Supernaturally, open your eyes so you can see his hand working. He's working all the time. Whether you can visibly see it, whether he agrees with your timetable, hint, he won't agree with your timetable. His timetable is perfect, not like ours, right? But the one lesson to take away from Esther is whether he's acknowledged or whether he's not acknowledged, he still will accomplish his purposes. Like Esther, you can choose to cooperate with God's purpose and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do, even though I don't understand it, because I want to be part of your plan. Does that make sense? All right. Next week, where are we? What are we studying next week? What are you going to do between now and then? Read the book. It's only a few chapters. All right. I do love you. And now that you know, what are you going to do? You're going to do what you know.